Talks at Afters, where you get access and insights from some of the best in the business. Here at Afters, we are on the land of the Gadigal and the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. And I would like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the extraordinarily rich 60,000 years of continuous culture that we are so fortunate to have here in Australia. Hello, I'm Nell Greenwood, CEO of Afters. And this is the place where you can find insights from some of the leading creatives in our industry. Directors, producers, podcasters, cinematographers, sound designers, screenwriters, radio makers, and more. All talking about how to make great work in complex times. Welcome to Talks at Afters. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, you mentioned the film, just the, the last film I made, Danger Close, which was this big war movie that we made that was just insane. I mean, we had, it was French hours and we had hard wraps, you know, so a hard wrap at 4.30 because the sun went and because, you know, we're doing rolling hours. And it's a weird thing, it's perverse, but you get addicted to the pressure. You actually get addicted to the problems. And it's got to a point now where if I haven't got a big problem, I don't feel like I'm actually working because that pressure puts you in this other zone and it sounds perverse, but if there isn't a big catastrophic problem, I don't feel I'm actually directing. (laughs) This edition of Talks at Afters features two of Australia's leading directors, Creve Stenders, who amongst many other things has directed Danger Close, The Battle of Long Tan, the TV miniseries, Wake and Fright from 2017, and of course our much loved Red Dog. In conversation with Jocelyn Morehouse, who has directed The Dressmaker, Stateless and Les Norton, and they are in conversation with AFTER's head of directing, Rowan Woods. They discuss their careers and projects and explore moving between the worlds of television and feature films. And the person you'll hear asking questions is Wendy Gray, our head of industry and alumni engagement. Now, um, hopefully you've had a a peep at their CVs and you can even prompt me towards the end if I've missed something. Jocelyn, you're first. Um, Craig, you're on the sidelines for this one uh, for a bit. Um, now, um, at afters, back in, sorry for doing the dates thing, uh, Joss, but um, you completed your first film at afters in 1983, graduated in 94. And I didn't realise this until I popped into Wikipedia and, and, and discovered that you were really quite intensely for a couple of years there involved in TV. Yes. Um, you made a 12-part series, uh, The Bartons, for ABC TV in 1988, based on one of your short films at Arthur's, which is an extraordinary um, leapfrog into the professional realm. Um, but you also worked um, on several TV shows in the late 80s, I presume, Flying Doctors Out of the Blue, Place Called Home and Humpty Dumpty Man. Um, I, that's 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 really interesting because that was all prior to when I was inspired and influenced by you and the amazing film Proof. Was that a was that is that something that um, is was an important platform for you moving into feature film and your own passion projects? Oh yeah, absolutely. I um, I set out wanting to be a film director from the age of seventeen, um, and I made my own little Super Eight movies, uh, but. I was also a realist and I knew I had to pay the bills and I was just thrilled to be offered a job um, anywhere, actually. And so I started my career in um, television because that's where I could get work. Nobody really wanted to give me money to make a feature film straight out of film school and I I knew that was going to be the case. So I just looked at those years as 
years to gain experience and um, I had a great time doing it. Good, good. Well, let's connect the dots and go further into your into your your journey. Um, you really launched yourself creatively with your first feature film, um, an amazing feature film, Proof, and I say that um, genuinely because I was making short films in the late 80s and a lot of filmmakers of my era and a lot of my buddies in, in Sydney and Melbourne and all over Australia really um, were amazed by Proof. Um, it's it's um, an absolutely beautiful film and it came from your interest in blindness and photography. Um, and then that led to your amazing success in Hollywood where you made How to Make an American Quilt in 95, starring Anne Bancroft and Winona Ryder, and A Thousand Acres in 1997, an adaptation of the Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Jane Smiley. Um, and I'm just going to leapfrog through this because I want to get through this quickly. In 2012, you directed a play, um, which I'd forgotten about, um, um, The Sex with Strangers, the Sydney Theatre Company, which had some incredible reviews. And then on the fabulous, went on to the fabulous and fabulously successful uh, The Dressmaker in 2015, starring Kate Winslet, Judy Davis, Liam Hansworth, Hugo Weaving. Um, and more recently, um, but no less significantly, you ventured into some hard fast directing of quality Oz TV, including recent stint on Stateless, directing alongside Emma Freeman. Now, Jocelyn, it must always seem a little weird having your director's journey sketched out in the blink of an eye, particularly in these sort of rushed formats. Um, and also, too, because it leaves out a lot of the life stuff, a lot of the real stuff with you and your partner, Paul, your journey as parents with growing up kids, transforming into young adults, your life journey going to the US, back and forth, back and forth and all of that. But it also leaves out the other significant collaborative creative credits that I often forget about with you, which are amazing in themselves, where you produced Muriel's Wedding. Um, and 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 you and you you were one of the producers on Mental in 2012, and you were a screenwriter a screenwriter on Unconditional <laughs> Love. So you know, folks, you put all this together. You put all of Jocelyn's work that started on a short film back in 1984, a collection of substantial stuff on TV, some hard yards in some really good TV, leading to an amazing first feature in Proof, leading to Hollywood and back again, um, and then a stack of TV in recent times, and that is one amazing uh, life. But it hasn't finished yet, has it? It's a full dance card, but it hasn't finished. Thanks, Rowan. <laughs> what does it feel like looking back at all that stuff? Well, it does feel very long. It makes me feel very old. But, you know, I, I can't complain. No, I've, I've loved my career, and it's taken some surprising turns, and uh, there's been some, you know, really... Difficult times, obviously, uh, but some really great times. And I think you have to expect both in a career like that. So, no, never dull. Good, good. Well, listen, we'll, we'll just get through the intros and, and set up the context of, of you two folks because we've got to do that before we get into the, the nuts and bolts of, of the directing craft and beyond. So, Craig, your turn. Now, an Australian writer, producer, director, you're widely known for an extremely diverse and eclectic bunch of TV projects. And I, again, I, I don't, I don't say that um, as a sort of a cliched intro because I know you and I know of you really well, and I know your work. And the the eclecticism and the um, and the integrity of everything you do in all the different places that you go as a director is quite amazing. Now, folks. 
I'm just going to sort of sketch out and I'm not going to do the chronological thing like I did with Joss because Mr. Eclectic here deserves a much more interesting mosaic setup than that. So, look, in no particular order, and I'm just going to look at the, the, the film stuff now, um, you did Blacktown and Boxing Day, two amazing, uh, very influential shorts in the early 2000s, 2005 for Blacktown, Boxing Day 2007. Folks, students, any cinephiles out there, go and have a look at these two amazing short films. But that preceded your first feature film, The Illustrated Family Doctor, and then you just went nuts. You just went completely nuts across two decades, doing all sorts of wonderful diversions in every direction. Um, you did The Lucky Country, you did um, in 2009, Red Dog in 2011, Kill Me Three Times in 2014, um, Australia Day 2017, uh, more recently Danger Close, Battle of Long Tan in 2019, a very, very... Um, it was an extraordinary, um, ambitious project, not only a war movie, but a deeply personal journey uh, for the central character. Really interesting project. And then on top of all of that in the last 15 years, you've also had extensive forays into TV series directing. Um, some of it just doing the episodic thing, um, but others uh, in a more significant, authorial, uh, influential role. Just scattergun uh, approach to the last 15 years of TV says that you've done Jack Irish, Wake in Fright, um, Hunters, an American show, A Place Called Home, Doctor, Doctor, The Principal, an amazing series on SBS TV that I think you set up and directed the whole thing. Is that right? Yep. Um, uh, and then that's not even including the non-fiction stuff, the beautiful work that you've done in the non-fiction space in TV that included... Um, the Pacific and Wyanzac, both with Sam Neill um, as a narrator, uh, as a narrator and a creative partner of sorts. I sense that in the voice of the show because I can feel Creed, but I can also feel Sam in both projects. Um, so, look, put all that together, folks, and you have um, Mr. Eclectic himself, um, Creed. How does that feel, Creed? Okay, well, yep, that's that's it in a nutshell, I guess. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, and also too, I should add that, um, I mean, for those cinephiles and um, social media people out there who are sort of cinema nerds, um, Creve also has a really quite astonishing voice in social media because um, not only is he extremely active, but he's sort of inspiring and informative at the same time. He doesn't sort of do the blow the trumpet thing that happens in SOSMED most of the time, um, particularly about cinema and about filmmaking and about one's own CV, he actually, he actually picks and chooses stuff that's of interest to him in relation to the cinema of the past, but also where cinema and where content creation is going in the future. So that's Creve. So um, let's get stuck into it. And I thought I'd start this, um, this little chat about trying to get under the hood of the craft, the directing craft, from the point of view of Creve and Jocelyn. And I'd start, I thought I'd start with what is seemingly an abstract notion, um, time. Um, now, over the years, um, accomplished screen directors like Creve and, and, and Joss 
Um, have this is a question to both of you. Have you have you learnt to deal with the strictures of time as a director, or are you still adjusting and tweaking the way that you manage creative goals within a schedule and budget? Because I know this sounds boring, but it's actually interesting because it leads to creative solutions. So the question again: Over the years, um, have you learnt to deal with the strictures of time as a director? Yes, <laughs> definitely. Go, Joss. I mean, I think from my very first short film, I realised that time uh, or the lack of uh, is, was going to be an extremely important um, factor in the quality of what I would manage to do in the film. Uh, so um, I'm always panicked, whether it's a short film. Well, I haven't done a short film in a long time. But, um, yes, it's it's always a race. You, I always joke about, well, I've got to, Hit the hit the ground with my roller skates on, and everybody else better do the same thing because we're going to be speeding, and um, it feels the same. It feels possibly worse on a television show because you have less time and more is expected of you. Uh, so, um, I mean, <laughs> that that's the kind of glib thing to say. Um, it's just that you're you have to produce a lot more footage in less time. Uh, would you agree with that, Crib? Yeah, it's always the law of diminishing returns, I think, you know, it's and especially now with I think the new landscape we're going to be heading into, time is going to be the the big the big critical factor, the big resource that we're going to have to really look at very carefully. Um, I mean, from my point of view, it's always been a learning process, you know, and one thing, you know, I think that all directors have is all they all they really have ultimately at the end of the day are their instincts. And one good thing about directing, more and more directing, is you gain more and more experience and you tune your intuition, you, you tune your instinctual kind of um, muscles, you know. So I'm always relying more and more now on, on intuitively feeling, oh, I've got that, I haven't got this, I need to spend time here. And a bit like an athlete, a bit like a sportsman, it's something you have to train and you have to keep on you know, every day you go, I could have done better, I could have done this, I could have done this differently. So you're always sort of trying to self-improve, always. So to me, it's a, it's a, it's a game, it's a, it's, a, it's a sport. It's a sort of a, an ongoing process of continually trying to think laterally and trying to think um, on your feet, but also honing those instinctual gut feelings you've always yeah. got. Yeah. And you, you both have been um, working in TV and film for a long for. I don't want to, you're not old folks, you've still got a long way to go. <laughs> but <laughs> I think just putting a historical perspective on it, because it's interesting what you say about, about instinct and, and developing that instinctual muscle creep, because I just want to put it, before we get to that, I just want to put a historical perspective on this, because um, as a TV director, lots of um, directors speak to me about the last two or three decades and the movement towards... Um, a place in production and a production mentality which, which sees um, a, a diminished amount of time and the expectation um, that you do more for less uh, with, with the budget and the schedule. It's a, and it's an interesting one and, and certainly, certainly I relate to it um, as, a, as a working director. Is it true that, you know, things have shrunk and expectations have actually gotten um, bigger and, and and I guess harder to achieve, the more for less mentality? Yeah. I mean, look, I did, um, 
every every project I do is is it's 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 always like a it's like an end game, you know, it's like a it's like a maths equation. Then you go, my God, you know, you know, how are we going to actually make this work over what was originally going to be a, a seven week schedule? We now we have to do in five. Um, and for example, like I made a film that you mentioned before called Australia Day, and um, you know that was a four week schedule, and that was like a you know like a feature film and. And and I mean, how are we going to do this? And then you come up. What what I like about this though is that the positive is that you come up with approaches and solutions. And my 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 caveat to the producers for that particular project was, well, look, why don't we shoot? You know, it's a bold thing, but why don't we just do oneers? Why don't we make this film all one take, one shot scenes? And they went with it, and that's how we got through that schedule. That's how we got through four weeks and shot a hundred minute film. So it's always this trade off. Like whenever there's a limit. You then have to think about well, what's the subject? What's the story? What's the form of the story? What's it telling me? How does it need to be made? And you use you go well. I've only got this amount of time to do it, so you find a creative solution to make it work. And that's what I'm always trying to do now is always finding the project and the time frame, and then within that, my directorial approach is born. And it is true, I suppose, that that um, to an extent, technology has, um, I guess, tempted producers and, um, and and the people who put together budgets and schedules to say to themselves that technology can work at a pace um, that we couldn't work at prior to technology. Um, and to a certain extent, uh, that's, that's true, isn't it? That we can, we can pace up our approach to, to shooting certain ambitious subjects and, uh, and logistics on screen. But it still comes down to um, human skill. You know, you can have as many fancy toys as you want, but you have to gather around you a wonderful crew and uh, you have to have great producers who can uh, organise and facilitate and support the working environment on set and, and the director and the actors. So you're still going to, to, to get optimum results, sounds so technical, but to get a good quality piece of visual storytelling you ha you still rely heavily on the talent of the people around you and um and their ability to adapt quickly to all those things creep was talking about suddenly a location falls through or um, an actor breaks their leg or it's raining and you were expecting a you know you needed to shoot something in scorching sun uh everybody has to adjust quickly um because you know putting it off and waiting like lovely Terence Malick would have waiting for the right weather. It's just not an option at the moment. So uh, you have to think about the story and how to um, adapt it quickly so that you can still get the same emotional goals uh, that the script had, but in the real world of actual filmmaking where you've got human beings and na nature doing unpredictable things. <laughs> Uh, you have to make adjustments. So you need quick-thinking people around you that will go with those adjustments. So a quick-thinking organism, um, you have to be together as one. Uh, it's not just you. Were you going to say something, Craig? Yeah, ultimately, though, you know, what I've realised, you know, with, with all the crews I've worked with is that, you know, and it's something I always have to tell producers as well at the end of the day when we shoot a day and we maybe don't get a scene or whatever, we can only work so fast as well. There's only so fast you can work. I mean, there's working fast and there's working fast. Mm. But there's working fast, that it's both safe and that you're not compromising the quality. And there's a classic joke, you know, it's not the time it takes to take the take, 
It takes the time to take the take. It's the time it takes to to take the take that takes the time to take the take. <laughs> I, I, I know that sounds nuts, but it's true. It's like, you know, you, the take takes so long to shoot. Mm -hmm. so yes. you, you can't, you know, you can't speed the take up. So therefore you also can't speed the process of getting that take. So yeah. there is a finite, there is a limit to how much you can actually shoot during a day. Um, yeah. And even though you shoot a lot, there's still it's still finite. And yeah. I think it's everyone reverse engineering from that finite number or that finite speed that you can work at. Yeah. Exactly. And I guess that goes back to what um, that Joss was saying too about the fact that, you know, your creative collaborators, particularly your producer, I think, is your creative partner because they have to appreciate not just from your point of view but from the point of view of the material, you know, progressing and, and finding, uh, finding itself um, artfully. It does take time. Does take time, but I, I want to I want to dig a little deeper into the director's mindset, into your into your facility to make decisions reasonably quickly, and that leads me to my next question: um, When the clock's ticking and you're on set, um, how important is it for you as a screen director to be fast and decisive in that moment, in that decision making moment, with your with your directives to fellow practitioners and to actors? Um, how important is it to be of that fast-thinking mindset to come up with that directive in the moment as a director? Very. <laughs> okay. uh, I'm sure Craig, Craig would agree with me. Yes, you you can't you can't waste time. Time is money. Time time you waste is time you don't have to keep filming. So you have to be sure. You have to make good, strong decisions. And you can only do that if you've done enough prep. And, and, and thanked a couple of times, maybe. <laughs> have you look just 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 off just just off the subject a little bit? Have you? Is there a moment where you you know you you felt that you were so ready on the day, but you actually blanked with an actor or with a creative decision required by crew? Can you remember that happening? Mm. <laughs> Probably. It sounds familiar. Um, but not did recently. Own it? Did you own it, Josh, or did you pretend? In my youth, <laughs> before I had a lot of experience, yes, that, that did occasionally happen because unexpected things happen. An actor might suddenly say, I, I thought I understood what this scene was about. I don't now. Why am I saying this line? And you go, oh, uh, and you give your explanation of why you think they're saying that line, but they don't agree with you. And you find yourself... Um, arguing about something that should only have really, you know, really been thought through and talked about in rehearsal. But, of course, if you haven't been given enough rehearsal, you don't get to have those conversations. Um, so you can sometimes be floored by an actor uh, being really, really confused suddenly. You know, they might have been fine yesterday or in this morning, but suddenly in the scene they, they get this sort of psychic panic about whether or not they're using the right, um method to get to a point in the scene and that's that's always a little scary and that's but, okay isn't it well there's nothing you can do really except talk it through there's no point you can't go well let's just do it because then you'll have an insecure actor and you'll probably end up with a dud moment so it's better to try and figure it out but of course then you've got your first ad looking at you and frowning and panicking and um if you have your writer on set you can invite them to come and help um if you're the writer, sometimes that's easier. 
not always. I mean, even on my first film, in Proof, <laughs> I remember sitting with uh, Hugo Weaving and um, Genevieve Pico uh, and they asked me about why I got Hugo to say something to Genevieve and I actually didn't know. And they burst out laughing and they said, but you're the writer, director. What do you mean you don't know? And I said, well, I wrote it instinctually. I actually can't give you a reason why I wrote that line. <laughs> they just, so we ended up talking it through when we figured it out. But I, I still remember that that was a panicky moment. And it sounds like you owned that moment as well, which I guess goes back to that, that idea about time, that we are trained to make decisive decisions and to give directives in the moment. But at the same time, we have to own those moments um, uh, that may be curiosity moments or they may be exploration moments. And they might teach you a lot, actually. Yeah, if you've got the time. And, look, sometimes you just have to take the time. What else can you do, you know, and that's happened. Yeah, that's 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 been my experience sometimes is that, you know, there's a it's a strange thing where you've got to, I guess, whatever you want to call it, grace under pressure or whatever, but you have to sometimes have a point where you just sit, say to the person, say to the crew, listen, I don't know how we're going to solve this. Give me 15 minutes with the actors. I know it's time that we haven't got, but tell you what, it's time that we, we'll waste more time by just fumbling our way through it. So let's just stop everything we're doing. Let's just concentrate and work this through and even though you feel like oh my god this is you know this is scary you know the, the wheels are falling off by actually sort of falling into that stress and allowing the solution to come just through natural process of thinking you end up making up the time later in the day anyway because you know it's a sort of trade-off you're always kind of going well okay I'll I'll Sacrifice maybe two shots at the end of the day. I'll shoot this scene more simply than I imagined. But the gains I made by actually giving this scene a little bit more time are far greater. So it's always a – you're always horse trading every day, every hour. There's always some kind of trade. And I guess that, I guess that, that points to um, the requirement for directors, particularly directors who are, are in the hot seat, to have a sense of equanimity, to sort of to, to be able to be calm under pressure, so that you can sort of process that horse trading that you're talking about, grieve in the moment. Because if you if you haven't got that capacity to be calm in the moment, which may or may not take experience, I'm not sure, um, then you sort of start because you're creatively frozen and you you don't feel like you can sort of explore, admit that there's an open-endedness to the, the question at hand um, or there's exploration to be had in the moment, blah, blah. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, you mentioned the film, just the, the last one I made, Danger Close, which was this big war movie that we made that was just insane. I mean, we had, it was French hours and we had hard wraps, you know, so a hard wrap at 4.30 because the sun went and because, you know, we're doing rolling hours. And it's a weird thing, it's perverse, but you get addicted to the pressure. You actually get addicted to the problems. And it's got to a point now where if I haven't got a big problem, I don't feel like I'm actually working because that pressure puts you in this other zone and it sounds perverse, but if there isn't a big catastrophic problem, I don't feel I'm actually directing. (laughs) I don't think it sounds perverse at all and it's really interesting and I've got a bunch of leading questions that are about where that capacity to, to... to, to take pleasure in the pressure, which is what you're talking about. Um, and there, this is a bunch of leading questions. I've got them written down, and, and they're actually about 
um, uh, thinking about our students and thinking about emerging practitioners and what they can get from you two. So here's the leading question. So where does a director's capacity to make fast, good choices come from? Is it experience? Is it having well thought through plan and or a set of artistic guidelines and or a coherent philosophical approach to story? So is it does it just come with experience or does it come with experience plus the prep that you do? All of the stuff that you do prior to coming on the set so that you know what you're talking about? I think it's all of it, actually. Uh, experience definitely helps. Uh, the, the longer I've been at the job of directing, the more calm I am. Uh, in a crisis, and also just, you know, I, I can calm down and enjoy it. In my early films, I was so panicked um, that I was going to, you know, screw up <laughs> that I, I, I would sort of barely breathe uh, while I was directing. I'm not like that anymore. I'm very confident that I know what I'm doing, and I just enjoy the process. I actually like, I like the whole shoot. I don't, I don't mind if there's, a, if there's problems. We work it out. Um, I, I really do heavily rely on my heads of department. But um, prep is a, is a huge factor. If you are prepared, you know what each scene is about, you know, you know what your visual approach is going to be. doesn't mean you have to storyboard everything. I used to do that. I don't anymore. Uh, but visual references are a good idea. Like, okay, I kind of want it to have this feel. Um, and you share that. Don't keep it to yourself. You share it with your heads of department. So everybody has the same goal, then it's easier to achieve things and you're less likely to panic because people will know what you're after and you'll, they'll give you suggestions. Uh, but, yeah, prep is everything and experience helps. What about what's your thoughts on that, Pree? Yeah, I mean, they're, 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 they're definite givens, but I think the third thing, and you, you hit on it before as well, for me, the, the key element, I mean, as a director, 99% um, of what I do, I think, as a director is casting not only the actors, but also your crew. So what you're doing is you're, you're casting, you're, you're putting together a band, you know what I mean? A bunch of people who you really trust and who you can fall on and rely on. And sometimes you will blank out and I'll just go, I don't know what the fuck we're going to do here. What do you think? And the DOP or even the wardrobe person will have an opinion and it'll trigger something. And what I love is this sense of community and the sense of sharing the experience with everyone, including the actors, and falling into, like, like you know, a trust exercise, falling backwards and knowing that someone's going to catch you somewhere. And then what's beautiful about that is, like, what surprises are you going to get? Like, you may have thought something out, you've done your homework, you've thought rigorously, this is how it's going to be done, but suddenly on the day you'll go, that's totally the wrong way to look at it. You've just come up with a much better way of saying this or showing this or revealing this and then that triggers a whole set of other ideas so it's just wonderful and that's why filmmaking for me is such a beautiful um craft and art because it's collaborative and it's like collaboration i've always envied musicians because to me there's nothing better than being in a band and playing music together and to me being on a film crew on a film set is the closest to ever get to being in a rock band <laughs> that's right i agree so, so before you put the band together, again, these are sort of leading questions on behalf of um, our emerging filmmakers and, and students out there. Um, before you put the band together, Creve and Joss, um, in pre-production, is it important to have some dreaming time uh, with the screenplay, um, to take your time, to mull over it, to spend time with the writer or the writing 
um, to sift through different creative options before you sort of lock into work mode with other collaborators. Oh, absolutely. You have to have that dreaming time, the marinating time. <laughs> uh, I, I always, you know, I, I start from a place usually of um, visual thoughts, maybe music. I, mean, I think music and cinema have, they share DNA. You know, it's because it's so much of it's about rhythm and um, moods and emotions and telling a story through various passages. Um, so, yeah, I I, uh, I I read the story. I I think about the moments that touch me. Um, if I've written it, obviously I'm going to have a deeper connection to it. But by the time, even if I haven't written it, by the time I'm on set, I'm usually feeling as if I've absorbed that script and it's part of me now. Uh, so I can translate it through my sensibility and, and it becomes part of my voice becomes a part of it. So you still sort of have to absorb it. You know, you, you need that time, definitely. So that, that screenplay analysis for you, um, what what's the process? Do you investigate the screenplay from a dramatic standpoint first, like analysing story, character, yes, backstory? Yes, it's all about storytelling. It's always about the storytelling. But does it, because you mentioned you mentioned being open to all sorts of emotional triggers when you're reading the screenplay and analysing the screenplay, like music and, and references and all of that. And, and again, I'm asking this from the point of view of the students who are often yeah. told to dig into the screenplay, dig into screenplay analysis in a formal way. You know, they've, they've got texts on the subject where you know they're in searching and investigating the screenplay for the dramatic. Yeah. Um, structural aspects of backstory and turning points and theme and all of those things, subtext, um, and then they, then generally speaking, conventional wisdom has it that, and this is what students actually say back to me, conventional wisdom has it that then they go on to their visual reference points and their emotional mm -hmm. triggers. And my response is, well, it, it can happen in any particular way, in yeah. any particular direction. Where, where are you at, Craig, with your screenplay analysis process when you first come to a script? Um, well, I'm going to kind of pick up the sort of musical analogy because um, I found the more I've directed, the more films I've made, I'm, 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 it is music. It, it, it's all music. It's all rhythm. It's all melody. And it's all about key. It's about tone. It's about volume. So what I try and do with scripts is when I read a script, I'm always, I read it a few times, you know, I read it once in the morning maybe and then the next day I'll read it again. And it's really interesting across a period of a week, I have five different reads of the same script. And then what I try and do is go, which, which read is the one that's coming up, bubbling up the most? And what's the rhythm of that? And what's the melody of that? What's the timing of it? You know, what's the, you know, like on sheet music, you have, you know, the four, is it four times, is it five times? And once you sort of lock into, oh, I think I know what time, beat this is in then that informs everything then you sort of can that gives you the architecture to start building the imagery maybe or you know as you said it all comes in different ways at different times so, so, do, you, so do you map the dynamic range of it in that musical way um, but even based yeah, just really on what what you're reading and how you're and, and how it affects you yeah and how you feel throughout the, the rhythm your emotional rhythm throughout the story like where where do you where how are you feeling at the beginning how are you feeling in the middle and how are you feeling at the end? And just remembering that like a song. And that's why when on set, I'm always sometimes, I sometimes telescope out and always think about what's the song 
what was that song that I heard when I first really landed the script in my mind, in my soul? Is this that song? And you kind of hear it. And, you, and I, I, I mean, I've come from a, uh, from a, 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 like a camera background, so I trained as a cameraman, but more and more now I, I, I'm using my ears as a director. I'm listening, I'm shutting my eyes sometimes at, during a take and going, does this sound right? And it's that sort of intuitive, again, that intuitive clockwork that you, you're drawing from. Does it feel right? Because then you think about the editing room. Have I got those rhythms with me in the, in the can so I can build those rhythms or reconfigure them? In the editing room, I'm just making sure that I've got all the pieces that I need to approximate that rhythm that I've always sort of had going on inside me. So, getting to that that rhythm and that shape, uh, um, it's almost like it's a piece of a piece of oral um, visual sculpture for you, and you you mark that in whatever way you do it. There must be a certain point, Craig, with you because you your your work's very eclectic, and every piece of work that I see of you, you've made very clear decisions with the DP about screen language and the aesthetic parameters associated with that screen language that fits that architecture, that shape that you're talking about. So so does the the shaping and the sort of the sculptural oral dynamic range come first and then the reference points and the working through of the screen language come after that? When when does it happen for you? It's it's like like falling in love. It just happens in all sorts of different ways. You know what I mean? You, you, it's not one. It, sometimes it takes ages to find out what the the visual language is. You know, sometimes it takes ages to work out what you know, how you know how you're going to uh, approach it directorially, what the next on say is going to be. Or sometimes it's really clear right from the very beginning what it is, and then then it forms everything. So, and that's what I love about directing, and that's what I like more and more is the mystery of it as well. And you've got to have mystery. You've got to have unknowns. You've got to you've got to sort of venture out. And not necessarily know, you know, you know it, it's it's in that direction, but how you're going to get there is is the exciting part. So it's again, it's the fun part of getting working with a team. Now someone will present to you one day a photograph of something from a book, and you go, "That's amazing! I've never." Seen, and, and then it opens up, and you look at more paintings of this artist, or more photographs of this photographer, or more films of this filmmaker, and you go, "Oh my God! I've just seen this film." Son of Saul, like, my, have you seen this film? It's just the, the most amazing thing. It completely changed my world. So you, you're always, you're always wanting those, you're always wanting to be inspired, and you're always want that inspiration to hit at any point, even, even on the day when you're shooting the scene, and even maybe as you're shooting the scene, you'll go. And I've done this sometimes. I've started shooting a scene, started blocking it, and gone. Fuck no, 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 no. We have to. Sorry, everyone. I'm so sorry. I know we've wasted half an hour here, but we've got to go back and do it this way. Um, so you've got to be sometimes the guts to sort of do that as well. And Joss, what about you and your process in terms of your discovery of um, of tone and and very very particular, um, well sculpted aesthetic parameters? <laughs> it's a crazy way of describing yeah. you, but but say for example, I mean your work is so beautiful and so carefully modulated uh, tonally. You know, with um, the dressmaker, for example, that from my point of view. I love it because this sort of dance between a sort of quite a theatrical, almost melodramatic aesthetic, but then there's this really, there's this sort of realism to the characters and a powerful emotional logic to the story. It's a collision of sort of theatricality and a very powerful emotional real story. How how do you get there in terms of the look of the film? Um, well, um, 
like Chris says, a lot of it is the casting, strangely enough, uh, even though we're talking about the look of the film. But you're looking, you're looking for faces. Uh, you're looking for souls that are going to have some kind of resonance on screen. And um, the inspiration for that came actually from Rosalie Ham's book because it was so vivid emotionally um, that I fell in love with the characters. And then I became hellbent on casting the absolute right people and casting the absolute right landscape. Uh, um, you know, I'm a very visual person and so certain images, many images, have emotional resonance for me. So I was trying to collect enough emotionally resonant images, including faces. It sounds so wanky, I know, but um, that's how I work. <laughs> um, to, uh, to try and put them all together and then apply the whole rhythm thing, uh, musical thing. But following the comedy of the book, the, the book was both deeply moving but also hilarious and I love that about the book. And so when PJ and I adapted the screenplay, we were, well, first of all, I think as filmmakers because, you know, we, we, we love that kind of storytelling anyway. Um, so we were a good match. Um, I keep coming back to saying DNA, but we were a good DNA match for the material um, as writers uh, adapting the book into the screenplay. And then, um, and then I, you know, I'd worked with Don McAlpine before. He, he and Roger Ford, who is the production designer, were very, very um, involved early on. A year before we were shooting, we were coming up with the look of the of the film. And we knew we liked the Drysdale colours and we wanted to go for a sort of Sergio Leone Western feel, um, earth tones. Uh, that was even before we were discussing the frocks. So um, it was all about working together to come up with this sort of fable-esque, like a fable, uh, and tell this story that's actually, while it is heightened and while it is 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 a kind of fairy tale, a dark Western fairy tale. It's also deeply honest about relationships and about bullying and about class differences and mothers and daughters. Yeah. Terrific. I'm just looking at the clock and thinking that I'm, I've got a little bit more to cover with you before we go to questions. And um, um, I've got a lot more actually, but that's going to be another talk. <laughs> um, <laughs> We're, we're really we're really getting to the very passionate way that you two prepare and we're obviously very different as directors and you two are very different from each other um, but what sort of journey is that for you as a director when you go from those passion projects where you're in control of all of those elements um, to TV where you're coming on to the project as, as, a, as an episodic director? Um, and obviously um, not an initiator. Um, that's that's a that's a tricky one in in terms of the workplace, isn't it? I mean, it also could be fun and a, and a great release as well in terms of what you can let go as a as an initiator, as a as a sort of a, the holder of the, the passion project, if you like. What's it like that shift from where you were with, say, the dressmaker and many of your passion projects, Creve, to um, some hard and fast TV. Well, I did a lot of talking, so you can start, Creve. <laughs> uh, again, look, I love it. You know, to me, it's it's like a um, 
it's it reminds me of going back to film school and working with you know when I went to film school we all got to work on each other's films, so every department got to make a film. So the editing an editing student would direct their film, and it's just great to be part of a team. You know I love that, and uh, what I love about plugging into a show like Doctor Doctor or a place to call home was that you know there's a language, there's a again there's a musicality that. Okay, this is the kind of music we're playing, and I love this music, and I want to try. I've never played this music before, and I'm going to work with some great actors. And what's wonderful about these shows is that you know they're families. You know the actors are families, the crew are families, and you 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 kind of come in for a few days. You sort of like the the cousin that comes in and stays for a couple of weeks, and then the next cousin comes in. You know, and it's and then if you get to do it over a number of seasons, it's so much fun. It's like a holiday. You know, you get to. I mean, what I keep on saying to myself every, every time I'm on set, every day I go to set, I go, I'm doing exactly what I've always wanted to do in my life. I'm, I'm the luckiest guy on the planet, doing exactly what I want to be doing. With um, I'm playing, I'm playing pretend, and we're dressing up, we're playing dress ups, and we're shooting. And this is going to get seen. It's going to get seen by an audience that loves what we do. So, to me, it's it's a win win win. And I get to I get more, my flying hours up. I get to um, try things out. I get to test my instincts. I get to play with schedules again. I get I see how close to the wire I can get with something. When the shit hits the fan, I know this is what this is what we do. I learn from a DOP about how quickly they can light or how quickly they can do something. And all that stuff I, I, I store away in my on my hard drive. And it informs them when I go make my own films. All that stuff kind of cross fertilizes. So it's great. You know, it's it's I, I can't get enough of it. And I guess what you're saying is the letting go of the, the 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 authorial responsibility and the responsibility that comes with being the initiator actually is a is a positive in that situation. Yeah, it's liberating. But you're also you also have to take responsibility too. And what's great is you know you, you, if you're allowed to try things out and maybe push something a little bit more or dig in to f- find something, you're a storyteller. So, and that's why I think makes uh, you know serialized TV so great. From director to director, each director, even though, I mean, subliminally, they'll put something in that episode that that keeps it alive, and and it's like you're handing over the baton to the next director, and they take that, and then you just go, okay, I'm going to make sure I just do one little thing in here that just maybe is something slightly out of the box, and then you know, that, then I can throw it to the next director. So you still have to take responsibility, um, but it's a lot more. Again, you 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 are sort of. You're an orchestra as opposed to just sort of being a solo artist. And I guess it's, I guess it's so interesting too that historically we're moving to a place with with long form TV, where on more and more occasions the the director is being asked to um, to actually take um, a, a role that is authorial unto that episode, to actually to, to to play and to sort of push the boundaries of what the style of the show is, and that's seems historically to be an interesting, um, wonderful place for TV to go, um, certainly for the viewer. Um, Shannon Murphy, I was just reading something, uh, an interview uh, just today about um, an experience that Shannon had on Killing Eve where she had an episode on that where the expectation was for that episode that the whole episode changes its rhythm and changes up the way that it sees the world um, and the way that the, the POV of the show. And the, the producers actually didn't seem to have necessarily a viewpoint on what that change-up was. They just said to Shannon, you go for it, um, which is interesting. And more and more, um, you know, you've just done, Joss, you've just done Stateless, which is obviously a TV where the directors 
are very much empowered, uh, you and Emma, to sort of um, to create your own visual interpretation of the text and to push your own boundaries. Yeah, that was very encouraging, actually. I, I, uh, I loved working on Stateless. Uh, beautiful story, beautiful crew and cast, and um, it was... Uh, was wonderful working so closely with the producers and with Elise and uh you know we all really believed in the story and I was um I was encouraged to to make it my own so um you know within reason <laughs> I was still telling a story I was still following on from Emma's work so uh, but you know my approaches my approach to how I told each how I um, directed each scene was pretty much up to me and um and my wonderful DP, Bonnie Elliott. Uh, so we, uh, it was a very creative experience. It was uh, really, really amazing to be out there in Port Augusta and on a sort of duplicate set that looked so much like the Baxter Detention Centre. And um, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, so uh, it was very inspiring and we could just uh, catch the... Uh, sort of magic that was floating around because the you know the skies were beautiful the 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 light was amazing we could go with whatever nature was throwing at us and um yeah it was it was a wonderful experience i liked it good good well wendy gray has popped back onto our screens um and that means that it's q a time so i'm going to rely on wendy now to have a she's already been peeking at the chats and the questions wendy passed over to you for q a uh, yeah, well, there's a number of questions that are for both and obviously some individual ones as well. First of all, a really interesting one is, um, can you both speak to any commonality in story that you find yourself drawn to when you're choosing projects? Yes, of course, yes. Um, I tend to respond to stories where uh, there are, are very strong female characters um, uh, doing things that female characters don't usually do. <laughs> um, I'm also interested in um, in the uh, fra fragility of the human spirit and dysfunctional families. <laughs> so I'm always drawn to those. Yeah, Yeah, I guess you know, for me, it's 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 just a I guess it's just a very broad um, I cast a very broad net. But as, if I can find an emotional hook, something that makes me feel something. Um, and if I know what the emotional outcome is, and if it's a worthwhile emotion to 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 tell a story about, that's that's to me the key thing is just feeling something because, you know, to me stories, films, TV, it's ultimately about how you feel at the end of it. And to me, that's the thing that if I if I feel that's a worthwhile feeling and a worthwhile emotion to to spend, you know, however long it takes to make something. Um, that to me is the key thing, you know, and that's the sort of, the, I call it, I call it my, I always have to find like the, uh, the keyhole and the, and the key to open it. And if I can find that, then that's, that's my in. Fantastic. Um, a really interesting question here about time. You know, earlier we were talking about, you know, the director has to be incredibly time conscious all the time on set. Um, do you avoid talking to actors about time or what's going on in terms of the schedule when you're on set, is that something that you try to, I guess, cushion them from a bit um, and keep them in that sort of mindset of character and creativity rather than, oh, I've got to get my lines right and if I don't get it right this take, we're going to go over? 
No, I don't shield them. Um, <laughs> well, it depends. If I'm talking about television, <laughs> uh, if they're a newbie, if they're young uh, or inexperienced, of course I'm going to shield them. But if they're veterans, if they've been doing this as long as I have, I, I like to include my actors as part of the gang, part of the rock band, as Creep would say. I, the more they know, the better, actually. Uh, I, I mean, in terms of this is what we have to do today, this is, um, it, this is how I'm going to shoot it, because actually a lot of them want to know. They, they panic. They go, oh, my God, how are we going to do these six scenes today? Mm. And I'll say, well, I have a plan. Don't worry. You know, we're going to get to it this way. And um, I find if I, if I try to shield them, they'll just sense it anyway and, and panic. Yeah, I, I always, what I found is no actor is the same. And they're all unique. And part of my job or part of my process when I start making something, whether it's TV or a film, is just slowly and very gently trying to work out what each actor's kind of, what their parameters are and what they're willing to tolerate and what they're not willing to tolerate. And everyone, it's like it's like having a family. It's like, you know, don't they're not good in the morning or <laughs> don't bring this up now, bring it up later. You know, choose your arguments, choose your battles but also at the same time know when to push and when not to push. And I think that's the thing about being a director is you've also got to be, you know, very good at reading people and at, at, at knowing, okay, look, I want – they clearly want to go for another take. We've got it, but I'm going to allow them that to allow them to move on. And then sometimes I'll go, no, we've definitely got it, 100%. We've got it. I wouldn't – I'm not pissing in your pocket. I'm, I'm genuine and, and we are running out of time and we've got to move on. So, but you can do that once you've built that trust again and that relationship. So it's a very, again, it's a very delicate dance, but it's like we're all humans, you know, and mm. we've all got to work with each other and yeah. find out how we all tick. Yeah. And further on, I guess, the questions around cast, there's a lot of um, interest in both your casting processes. Um, Jocelyn, you referred to looking for faces and souls that kind of fill up that that image that you've got of a film um, but I guess people are interested in your both your processes in terms of casting a key roles well I'm not just looking for faces and souls I'm also looking yeah. for chemistry yeah. um, a spark how they'll be sort of matched uh, now I have to do a cooking analogy but like the flavors that you're looking for in a cast different kind of flavors will they go well together will the will there be interesting contrasts so it's um but it's mostly, um, Kreev earlier mentioned when he was describing, um, I guess, bonding with a screenplay, he mentioned falling in love. Well, in a way I kind of have to fall in love with an actor for a role. Not, not that I want to have a relationship with them. What I mean is, you know, you, you go, oh, my God, that's, that's it, that's him or that's her, and I can't imagine anyone else playing this role. I want to work with her in this role. And once I feel that, then, yeah, I'll fight for that actor. So how often for both of you um, when you're developing a project, have you got a firm idea of who is going to play this role in mind and then you're able to actually take that through to reality? How often does that happen? That's a very tricky one because a lot of times films are cast, there's two levels of casting. There's the creative casting that you do, but then there's also the pragmatic market, market casting. And I've learned to sort of really um, keep an open mind um, 
And, you know, sometimes you just have a very visceral, like, this is the person, this is it. And then suddenly someone else will come along and you go, oh, <laughs> I never thought of them, but they're even, you know, and it, you kind of get thrown. So you've got to kind of really keep an open mind and mm. be very, and always think of it from two ways. Like, okay, commercially the producers want this kind of person or this person. Creatively I want this kind of person. And ultimately you want them to be the same. You want them to, you don't want them you want yeah. you want both sides to be balanced, and that sometimes that takes a lot of toing and froing. Sometimes it just happens, and it's just it's just the alchemy of any kind of filmmaking. Sometimes things happen straight away. Sometimes they they don't. You know, they eventually fall in right at the very last minute. So it's it's completely unpredictable. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, we have a number of um, emerging directors watching today who've got the um, how can I develop my career kind of questions. Um, one is how do you make the transition from directing a short through to the you know massive leap to directing a feature in terms of just your own confidence and preparation, apart from you know obviously getting the money. Wow. Um, well, in my case, <laughs> uh, I found myself a producer that I trusted, and she kind of helped me. She's, that was Linda House. She uh, taught me how to be a director of a feature film <laughs> while we were going along. Uh, I'd done quite a few short films, but she very patiently explained to me, uh, you know, it's all about pacing yourself and, uh, you know, you've done a 10-minute film, well, now you're going to be doing a 60. Actually, no, it was a 90-minute film. So you've got, to last, you've got to keep that energy going for nine times as long. <laughs> and uh, it's the same thing, though. Once you learn how to be a visual storyteller, you, you'll learn more as you go through, through um, your career, but um, it's a skill set you'll fall back on. and. Um, just keep developing your skills, you know. Um, and and you just, just particularly for you, someone was asking about um, advice for young women who wanted mm. to, you know, um, follow their directing career. Yeah. Advice particularly for young Australian women today? Well, yes, I would say um, keep making your films, even if you have to do it on an iPhone. Um, find your voice mm. because that's what's going to help find producers who want to work with you. Mm. Uh, so just keep developing your filmmaking skills and your muscles. <laughs> um, develop projects. They can be small, but if they're really cool or really curious or fascinating, you'll uh, catch the eye of someone that will want to help, um, that will want to work with you. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what happened to me. You've been listening to Talks at Afters, an Australian film, television and radio school podcast. Please subscribe for more episodes. For show notes and other resources, head to afters.edu.au. That's afters.edu.au.